Our scripture reading today will be from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Haggai 1, 1 through 11. This is the word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, thanks, Shonika. Um, in early 2000, or I should say not early 2000, in August 2003, uh, Missy and I were returning from our honeymoon. We were, uh, we had just gotten married. Uh, we were, we were traveling that summer. We'd been away from our, what was going to be our, our, our new place in Tallahassee. So we get back from the, the honeymoon. It's a bit later. We kind of got a late start getting home. And it ends up being kind of later at night, uh, by the time we actually get there. And, uh, so we're finally there. You know, we got the, the car full of stuff and go to open the door, get out my keys. And I don't have a key. Turned out I gave it to a buddy of mine while we were going to be gone for the summer for about two months for a ministry assignment. And so we get there and it's like, you know, nine o'clock, no key. So it's not a big deal. I'll just call my buddy. He doesn't live far away and he's got my key. So I'll give him a call. And this dude who never goes on dates is out on a date. And, and not just out on a date, but he's like 45 minutes away. So anyway, so I get in the car, we get back in the car, and we end up making an hour and a half road trip. We'd already been driving over five hours this day. And so anyway, we uh, find them after an hour and a half, get back to the house. At this point, it's, it's, we're on the wrong side of 10. And so uh, it's getting kind of later, at least for me, and open the door, turn on the lights, try to turn on the lights again, lamp's not working, light's not working, guess who forgot to pay their electric bill? I was gone for a couple months. It was back before everything was set up, automatic payments. So anyway, no electricity. So that's a bummer, uh, dealing with that. Then uh, after that, um, 
the next morning, we, we left her car there uh, for the two months we were gone. And the next morning, uh, I go into her car, and it is covered in mold. It is damp. Uh, and, you know, it's in the, been in the Florida sun all summer. It turns out, like, in the sunroof, there was a leak from a wreck she had had. And it just kind of sat there still for two months, just collecting water and the Florida sunshine. And so, uh, so I get in the car, and uh, so I'm, like, I'm taking it and vacuuming out. And so I roll down the windows because there's a lot of mold. This is already making some of y'all cringe. And so I'm driving down the road, windows down, and, and like, all the mold and mildew is just stirring up. And, uh, and then I fixed it because I vacuumed it once, so that solves that problem, right? Um, but, but anyway, so I get back, and uh, as you might imagine, I wasn't feeling too hot after this. And this really intense, I got a really high fever, started getting the shakes and the chills and all that. Uh, one of my friends said, well, besides that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Uh, so it's just like everything went bad that first 24 hours we got back. And, you know, one, kind of, one bad thing happens, and you might not think much of it. And then, like, a few bad things happen in a row. You start to think, I think, is the Lord doing something here? Are we, are we maybe under the Lord's discipline? And, uh, and you know, we, we never really came to a, a firm answer on that. You know, I, I don't think we were necessarily under the Lord's discipline, though we could have been. I think what was happening there was what Dave Ramsey calls paying stupid tax. Like, I just, I should have had two keys. That's not, you know, all that smart. That's not smart to have only one key to your place. Uh, should have paid my electric bill. Should have gotten that thing set up before I left. Uh, probably shouldn't have left the, the car sitting there. Probably should have had somebody checking on it, moving around, just not letting it sit still for a while. But anyway, it, like I said, it, it, it could have been stupid tax. It could have been the Lord's discipline. It could have been a little bit of both. Um, but, but here's the thing, is that when things happen like that, we can't help but think, is something going on here? And, and the reason I, I share that story is that's probably where the people in Haggai's day needed to be. If they weren't there, they needed to get there. Because the Lord, the, things were not going well for them. It was like everything was going bad. Uh, they, they would uh, make money and they'd lose it. The harvest wasn't happening. There was a drought. It was just like everything was going bad. Uh, and what we see in this case, at least, is that it wasn't just chance, it wasn't just random, it wasn't just, hey, some seasons are hard seasons. This was from the Lord, and he was doing this for a specific reason. And, and the Lord's discipline isn't just an Old Testament thing, it's, it's a New Testament thing. We read about it in Hebrews 12, is that when you, when you come to Christ, you are the adopted brother of Christ, and you are therefore a child of God. The reason you're a child of God is because you're the adopted brother of Christ. You are in the family. When you're a Christian, you are treated as a son or daughter of God. And he disciplines his children. It's even a sign that would be a, a, a sense of assurance for us that he disciplines the ones he loves. And so what we're seeing here is that they are under the Lord's discipline. And it's interesting, in, in, uh, in two places in chapter 1, the Lord gives this command that I think we would do well to consider as well. In verse 5 and in verse 7, we read this, Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Yahweh wanted them to give some thought to how they were operating. And perhaps the Lord would like for us to do the same, to consider our ways. And I want to do, I want to do this in two ways. Uh, first, I want to consider Judah's ways with Haggai. And then secondly, 
I want to consider our ways with Jesus. All right, so first, consider Judah's ways with Haggai. Here's some background on Haggai. Uh, As we've gone through the the minor prophets, uh, a few times we have been talking about or around this exile that was going to happen. It happened to Israel. It happened to, to Judah. What God promised through Moses was that if they turned away from the Lord, one of the curses was going to be that another nation would come and they would take them and take them out of their land. They would be exiled. And so this is often happening. Now, one thing that's interesting, with the prophet Jeremiah, who was prophesying about Babylon coming to take them out, which they did, the Lord revealed to Jeremiah that this was going to happen for 70 years. And after 70 years, they'd be able to return to their homeland. And so Haggai is written after that return. So they've come back from exile. They're in the homeland. And uh, and so they're, they're, they're settling in there. But there is a problem once they're there. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 through 6, and we're going to see what this problem is. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, And harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So here's what's happening. They come back from exile. They're, They're finally home, and they're working, and they're repairing their houses. They're getting their house in order, but they're totally neglecting there, the, the, the temple, it just sat in ruins. And they say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so the Lord says, consider your ways. And then he mentions that they've planted much, but harvested little. They don't have enough to eat, to drink, or to wear. And whenever they earn money, it's like putting money in holes with bags. It just falls right out. So, so the two things that we learn there or that the people in Haggai's day are neglecting the temple, and as a result of that, things are not going well for them at all. Now let's look at chapter 1, verse 7 through 11. We read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on the ground that brings forth on man and beast and on their labors. So the Lord tells them to rebuild the temple And he tells them that he's making things go poorly because while they are tending to their houses, his house sits in ruins. They busy themselves with their own houses. So he was holding back his blessing. He was not allowing them to have success. He withheld produce. He called for a drought on the land until they made the temple a priority. Now, it'd be tempting for for a pastor to, to, to take Haggai for a building campaign. Wouldn't this be perfect? 
like, hey, we're trying to make some money here for the building. This is about giving money for a building. You should give money to the church for the building campaign. And look, I think there are some principles that could apply. So if anybody ever does this, if I ever do it, uh, it, it's not totally off. It's not totally unrelated, but I I think it would miss the point here. And and here's why. The Old Testament temple and and the church building are, are not the same thing. Those are two different things. Now, where there is a connection is that, is that the church, as the people of God, are the New Testament temple. The, the people of God are the temple, and the people of God happen to meet in buildings usually. And so there's, there's some connection, but I don't think the point of Haggai is about a building campaign or about making things nice at a church. The point of Haggai is that the Lord has become secondary. He's become something to we'll, we'll get to later on. The people of Judah just moved. They've been gone for 70 years. They got things to do. And and look, they'll get around to Yahweh's business once they have their house set. I mean, we got things going on here. And and once we have our house set, then we'll get to Yahweh's business. The people of Judah who just returned from 70 years of exile, turning away from the Lord, need to consider that. That 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 this was not the this was the time for them to work on their own things and that the time for Yahweh would come later. And do you know what makes us turn away from the Lord being primary or, or even from even being secondary? It's, it's, not just, it's not just that we're selfish. It's not just that we have bad priorities. It, it, it's that we got stuff that needs to be done. There's things going on that we need to do. You know, a lot of times when the Lord doesn't become or isn't primary or even secondary, it's not so much that we're in rebellion or in a crisis of faith as much as we're just busy. We got things going on, and we don't have a lot of time for extra stuff like Yahweh. That's going to have to come later when our schedule clears out. So we need to consider our ways. And we might look at these people in Haggai's day and see them as selfish or not having their priorities straight. And we wouldn't be wrong to think that. But, but, I, don't, but, I, but I want to take this issue of selfishness or not prioritizing the Lord. And I, I want to consider it from a different angle. And so let's consider what Jesus has to say about it. So my second point is this. Consider your ways with Jesus. And I want to flip over to Matthew chapter 6. So we've been in Haggai. And, and I want to go to Matthew 6, and we'll go back over to Haggai eventually too. But, uh, but anyway, I think these are going to parallel. Now, here at Redeemer, it seems like a lot of you guys and girls know the Bible pretty well. And so if I were to ask you, if I were to say, hey, um, let's do a Bible study on priorities, on, on, on putting the Lord first. And if I were to ask you guys, give me a text, give me a verse that we can build off of. Many of you would rightly say Matthew 6, 33 would be a good one, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So that's kind of about priorities, right? Now, what stands out is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's kind of what we remember about that verse. But the first word in that sentence is, but, but seek first the kingdom of God. It, says it, has, it begins with that but, that means it's contrasting it with something else. It's contrasting it with what was previously said. And so if you zoom out 
of Matthew 6, of Matthew 6.33, we see that this famous verse is in the context of money and anxiety. So it makes us not seek first the kingdom of God, according to Jesus in the context of Matthew 6, is anxiety-inducing money problems. Real-life problems that need real-life solutions. So when Jesus says to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, it is in contrast to trying to anxiously solve money problems. So let's look more at what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 19 to 21 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and whether thieves where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can ponder that with Haggai 1, right? And then in uh, chapter 6, verse 24 in Matthew, uh, we read that you will uh, that you can't serve both God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other because one's going to get in the way of the other. <clears throat> and then Matthew 6, 25 to 32, is all about being anxious. It's all about that. And Jesus makes the case that God cares for the birds of the air. He takes care of them and asks, are you not much of much more value than they? And multiple times in the passage, Jesus gives this command. He says, do not be anxious. That's not a suggestion or an encouragement. That's a command. This type of anxiety that's, that's kind of involved around money and things happening, things being provided, is a type of anxiety that is prohibited by Jesus, just like lying or stealing might be prohibited. And why is it prohibited? It's because Yahweh will take care of his people. And when we quit believing that and act, think, and live as if it's only us providing, he does not bless those efforts. He does not bless our efforts to pretend to operate in a world that he, where he doesn't exist. And now I want to point out something else that's in this Matthew 6 passage that ties back to Haggai chapter 1 that I think is interesting and helpful. So look at Matthew 6, 22 to 23. It says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? <clears throat> So here's what's happening here. This, Jesus is saying this right in the middle of talking about, of really talking about money and the anxiousness that can kind of come in around it. And he says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, if anxiety-inducing money problems are your controlling center, then everything you do is going to be off. If, if anxiety-inducing if, if anxiety money problems are the things that make you operate and move in your life, then everything you do is going to be off. For example, let's say my primary goal for Redeemer Church was a million-dollar budget. And I go into my office, and I'm working on how can we get our budget to a million dollars. And I'm going to preach. And what, what do you know? We got Haggai. That'll preach, right? And so everything I'm doing, the people I'm meeting with, the people I'm talking to, what we're doing here, there, everywhere, it's all around getting Redeemer Church to a million-dollar budget. If I'm operating that way, 
even when I try to do something good, it's going to be off, right? Because even if I'm doing something good for somebody, I'm really just using them because I want them to help me get to my goal of the budget. And so everything I would do would be off. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So, so keep that idea in mind, and let's go back to Haggai 1. And we're, we're going to look at a passage that be, uh, it's one of those when you read the Minor Prophets, they can kind of be so confusing that they're easy just to kind of read through and just kind of dismiss because it's a little bit hard to understand. So I want to read one of those verses that I think is going to be clear as we relate it to Matthew 6. But in Haggai chapter, let's go to Haggai chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. And it might seem odd at first. If, if this was a Jewish audience uh, during this time, it would make perfect sense. It might not make as much sense for us, but we'll try to understand it together. So Haggai chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. <clears throat> if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so, it is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me declares the Lord, and so with every, every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now, that might seem about as clear as mud, but let me explain. So here's what's going on. When, when something, if they touch the fold of their, their garment, touches something holy, and then they touch something else, it doesn't make that thing holy. But if they touch something that makes them unclean, and then they're unclean, and they touch something that's unclean, it does make it unclean. And so what it's saying that when you're unclean, whatever you touch becomes unclean. Go back to the idea of the pastor whose main goal is to have a million-dollar budget. And all of a sudden, he's teaching the Bible, and let's say I'm teaching the Bible, going to try to do my best job with it, but I'm really just trying to make money off this thing. Then it's unclean. And so there's this sense where when you're off of center, when you're not centered in, not seeking first the kingdom of God, then guess what? You're seeking something else. And is it any surprise that some people kind of figure out maybe Christianity, church attendance, church going, is a form of accomplishing the good life? And might that become unclean? We should consider our ways. The point that Haggai is making is that Judah was like that. They had become so twisted that everything they did was unclean. The Apostle Paul wrote something similar in Titus 1.16. He said, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So what Paul is saying, what Haggai is saying, and what Jesus is saying is that if you're not seeking the kingdom first and his righteousness, then you are seeking something else first, and you have made a false god, an idol, out of something, and therefore everything you do is going to be off. So what do we do? We need to consider our ways. Do we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or are we trying to create the good life? Or to put it negatively, are we trying to avoid an unhappy life? If we have as our primary goal to build a good life or to avoid an unhappy life, everything we do is going to be off because that's our controlling center. Both Haggai and Jesus said that the Lord stands ready to bless. 
It's put positively and negatively. So in Haggai, we see that the Lord, he says, look, you've turned away from me, so I'm taking all these things away. And then in Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek me first, and all these things will be added to you. So if we're going to worry or be anxious about anything, it should be whether or not we're seeking the kingdom first. And if we do that, then according to Jesus, everything else that we're anxious about will be added to us. And look, when it comes down to it, though, what makes the difference is not your commitment level. It's not how unselfish you are or your ability to make the right priorities. Because sometimes you can hear Matthew 6.33 and you just think, I need to do better. I need to, I need to step up my game and, and make God a priority and all that. And it's a little bit of this self-reliance. I can do it. I just got to get it done. And I don't think that's what the scriptures teach us. I think it has everything to do with what you think about God. And and if your controlling center becomes seeking the kingdom first and his righteousness, you need to get there not by being tough and disciplined and having good priorities. You need to get there by knowing who God is. And look, apparently... People had anxiety issues in Jesus' day. So anxiety is not unique to our day. And you can imagine the people in Haggai's day, hey, we just got back here. The house is a mess. It's not, it doesn't even have a roof. We, we got to get to that, and we'll get to, to, to Yahweh later. Real problems, not just making things up. Real problems. But look, anxiety is no fun. We all struggle with it to, to one degree or another. It is no fun. It keeps us up at night makes us mean. It makes peace and joy seem unattainable. And so Jesus is very kind when he prohibits anxiety. It is a cruel, cruel master that I'm assuming all of us know that. But the command to be, to not be anxious is, it's a difficult command too, right? Because most of us, when when we were struggling with anxiety, we'd love to just stop, (laughs) We'd love to just not be anxious. If there was a button to turn it off, be happy to turn it off. We take no, we, being anxious is no fun. It's not like a guilty pleasure. But the way we kill anxiety is not by just saying, you know what? I'm just not going to be anxious anymore. I'm just not going to do it. That's not the way it works. And here's another way it works. It doesn't work by solving problems. I mean, there's a sense where anxiety can be there, and then something gets taken care of and it goes away. But y'all know, it's like trimming a weed. Something else is going to pop right back up. And so how do you turn it off? If you're anxious, how do you turn it off? I think we see here, you don't focus on anxiety. You focus on seeking first the kingdom of God. And let that capture your imagination more than whatever is making you anxious. And if we're going to do that, then it really matters what we think about God. Do you believe, do you believe Jesus when he said that if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, that he will, all these things will be added to you? And can you let him handle whatever makes you anxious? Because one one thing that anxiety shows us is that we're not casting our anxieties on the Lord, but we're dealing with them ourselves. 
Anxiety is directly related to what you think about God. The Apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. If your controlling center is, is, is anxiety and you want to get rid of that, and you want to say, well, I'm just going to do better. I'm not, think, I'm not sure it's going to help. You know what's going to help? Getting down deep in your bones that your Father in heaven cares for you. He knows. He, he knows what's going on, and he cares for you. The Apostle Paul said something similar. He said, do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything, everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known, made known to God. Look, we all struggle with anxiety to one degree or another. And when our anxieties get trigger, triggered, we need to remember to cast them onto God our Father because He cares for us. We don't need to be like those in Haggai's day who got anxious and got busy and got to work. We need to remember that He cares for us and that we seek his kingdom, uh, his kingdom first, his righteousness first. And then let him add all those things to us as he sees fit. He can do more while we are asleep at night than we can do in a lifetime of anxious toil. Don't you know he can do more? I mean, certainly by this time in, in our lives, we've had one of those things where things just kind of worked out. You know, that, that one day where the sun shined on us and everything fell together. And you just knew intuitively, like, man... Things went really well right there. Things just fell into place. And then we've all had times, no doubt, where we've worked really hard and nothing good came from it. It just seemed like it was all for nothing. So we should know, if only just intuitively, that God can do more in our sleep than we can do in a lifetime of anxious work. So we would do well to consider our ways. What effect does our anxiety have on our seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In what ways does our anxiety reflect a lack of belief in God's care for his children? And let me end by just making by just saying this good news again. God cares for his children. He gives his children everything they need. There's not one thing they need that he holds back. So we need not be anxious about anything. Now, you, you hear this, and if you're like me, you might think, well, I, I kind of mess up a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm prone to, to wonder, and I'm prone to, like I was saying earlier, have a lot of stupid tax issues. We haven't done anything to deserve God's kindness to us to begin with. Let me remind you that our whole belief system is built on unmerited kindness to sinners. What is central to our faith is God demonstrating his love for us by sending his son to solve the biggest problem we could ever have. If we should be anxious about anything, it should be about our sin before a holy God. And he's dealt with that. In his love for us, he took care of what should truly make us anxious. And how much more will he take care of us in the much smaller things? So, May God help us to orient our lives and our minds, not around solving the practical problems that make us anxious and keep us up at night, but in, instead seeking first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And why would we do this? Because he cares for us. He cares for those who struggle. Let's pray. Father, how kind you are to us. We are overwhelmed with things that are weighing down our hearts and minds. We're anxious. And in these anxieties, we look to ourselves, to others. We become problem solvers more than we become prayers. And so would you help us to cast our anxiety? And would you have us convinced deep in our hearts and our minds that you care for us and that we are free to seek your kingdom, your righteousness, and that you will add all things else to us. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.